Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch. Go to thedispatch.com to uh, get three inches taller. And um, if you poke around long enough, you can learn the Court of Blood technique, uh, championed by uh, Billy Ray. Uh, If you don't know the reference, that's a shame. Cultural literacy is important. So uh, this is the third one of these things that I'm doing. And so far, people encourage me are still encouraging me to do them. Um, I uh, still don't feel quite natural about it. Uh, it's, it's very, it makes me very self-conscious and, uh, but I appreciate the support and the encouragement and maybe I'll get better at it. Uh, so it's been kind of a crazy week. Um, you know, I kind of feel weirdly blessed. It's sort of like a, um, I don't know, like the Sardaukar in, in Dune or um, in that movie Hannah where the girl's way, raised in the wild to learn how to be a, a super assassin or, I don't know, Karate Kid where, you know, he thinks that he's just being uh, told to wax the fence and um, or, or wax the car, wax on, wax off and paint the fence and all of that stuff. And then it turns out that he was actually learning meaningful skills. Um, I've spent... As listeners and readers of mine know, you know, big chunks of the last couple decades, um, sort of like Howard Hughes with Kleenex boxes on my feet in my basement, working on books and columns and uh, quote unquote news letters. And, uh, you know, my, my misanthropy is somewhat misunderstood, but I'm pretty good at social distancing. And so, you know, I was writing G files and the front seat of my car smoking cigars years ago and now it looks like I'm dutifully socially distancing when in fact that's just sort of who I am I kind of feel like I was born into this I also can't tell for the life of me whether I've made this point on 10 different podcasts or not because you know most of the long <laughs> sentences that I offer these days seem to come in podcast form when I'm not talking to my family and and it's not like my I say these sorts of things to my family. Um, I, I've yet to explain the difference between Gemeinschaft and Gesellschaft to my daughter. Um, anyway, so um, I'm recording this. I just sent off the draft of the G file to the worker bees. Um, it'll be out long before this um, audio version of it goes out there. One reader suggested that we call this the ruminant, <laughs> because that's what I do is I chew on this stuff. Um, maybe that'll stick, I don't know. 
So uh, I don't know exactly where to begin. The GFAL today is in part on this thing that, you know, really sort of lit a fire in my head uh, from my conversation with Lyman Stone about um, how what really changes behavior is information, clear communication that uh, signals to people that they need to change their behavior. And um, I keep meaning to look for good examples of this kind of thing um, in other realms. You know, it's, it's funny, years ago, I first noticed, you know, I used to, when I was a younger guy and it was a little more appropriate, um, after speeches or talks on college campuses, I would often go off with the students and drink beer. I like beer. And, uh, sorry, I just had some. And so, uh, and I don't know, it was about 15, 16 years ago where I started running into college kids who didn't drink. Now, I, I don't care if you don't drink. I know lots of people who don't drink. I know lots of college kids who don't drink. But I remember this one kid, I was talking to him, and he, I was like, don't you want a beer? And he says, no, I don't, I, I don't drink. And I said, okay. But there was something about the way he said it that just sort of seemed weird to me. And I was like, do you mind if I ask why? And he says, oh, I just don't. And after a friendly interrogation, you know, I asked him, is it a religious thing? Is it, you know, whatever. And he said, well, basically just because it's against the law. He was like 20 and um, he didn't drink beer. He didn't drink alcohol because it was against the law. And um, that just sort of seemed very strange to me as someone who started going to a bar called Cannon's on the Upper West Side near Columbia when I was in, I don't know, ninth or 10th grade, it just seemed odd. You know, people, I came from a Gen X crowd where getting a fake ID was, you know, a life quest. And um, admittedly, the drinking age back then was 19 and it's a little different when it moved to 21. But it was against the law when I was 17 and it was against the law when this kid was 20. And it just sort of seemed to me, like it comes to mind, it's not a great example for all sorts of reasons, but it, was sort of, it always stuck out with me. And now I meet people like that all the time on college campuses. Um, and I don't think it's just because it's against the law. Um, the change in the law also reflected a change in attitudes. And a lot of the kids who, it's funny, a lot of the kids who didn't drink would smoke pot, <laughs> you know, which is also, at least until fairly recently, against the law. But there was this sort of vague feeling, like when I was a kid, there were lots of kids who didn't smoke pot because they didn't want to get caught, they didn't want it on their permanent record, but they um, uh, were fine drinking beer, and it's just one of these things about, the, about how communication and public attitudes change behavior. I, I really don't think the change in the law was actually the thing that was at work there, but maybe I'm wrong. I mean, another one would be Again, it's not a great example. It would be like seatbelts. Um, when I was a kid, it was considered really uncool to wear a seatbelt. And by the time I was in college, that was really changing. And, you know, you know, Lyman makes the point that there are things that the government has to do when fighting the coronavirus that send a signal. Um, and his point is, is that the actual law may or may not have important benefits, you know, uh, uh, shutting down businesses, stay-at-home orders, and all the rest. 
But the real impact, and sort of his version of this, is the signaling mechanism that those things have. And um, it just seems that there's, I'm still looking for better, you know, more concrete examples of this kind of thing, because I really like the idea. And, you know, and one of the main reasons why I like the idea, and this is something that I write about in the G file today and in my column this week, is that there is this weird convergence among uh, both the harshest critics and the strongest defenders of Trump that if Trump wanted to, he could order the economy to restart. And that's just simply not true. Uh, people stopped getting on planes in large numbers long before the government did anything. And in fact, the government still hasn't shut down the airlines, but people, you know, we had the smallest amount of, of air travel this week since like 1957, but the airlines are still running. It's just people don't want to get on planes because they think it's unsafe. I mean, I know obviously it's a complicated thing and you know, business travel has been cut and all of the rest. But even so, you know, the dispatch, we closed our offices before D.C. government ordered anybody, ordered businesses to shut down. Um, in most parts of the country, the, the stay-at-home orders and all that kind of stuff are lagging indicators. They're not leading indicators. And what is sort of informing a lot of people is the fact that some states find that this is necessary, you know, and people on Facebook are hearing stories about people, you know, getting really sick and they're changing their behavior accordingly. And that's how it should be, right? I mean, this idea that, you know, we should live in a country where the government can, you know, both lawfully and just sort of in reality, uh, stop the economy and or start the economy or will human behavior uh, that they want into existence is really very, very contrary to what America is supposed to be about. And I talk about how, you know, in Alexis de Tocqueville, you know, he talks about how Americans from birth are very distrustful of authority, but they're very eager to uh, help one another and form voluntary associations and not, you know, there's this story, there's this, it's not quite a story, but he uses it as an illustration. He says, you know, if a wagon, fall, you know, turns over in a road, um, Americans will just go and set it up right and get it out of the way um, without waiting for the authorities to come and manage the situation, which is how a lot of other cultures operate. You know, I've told this story a million times about, you know, you know, the differences between Canada and the United States, where, um, you know, Canada was founded by royalists and loyalists who didn't want to rebel from the king, and America was founded by people with their head and their hearts wired together for some full-tilt boogie for freedom and justice. And that created a very two very different cultures. Um, people who don't think there's a difference between Canadians and Americans um, don't know much about either. And the example that Marty Lipset, who was this brilliant guy, um, he was, you know, at one point he was the president of both the American Sociological Association and the American Political Science Association, and sort of a, uh, you know, a liberalish neoconservative um, in the original meaning of the term, which had nothing to do really with foreign policy, but had to do with, you know, social science. Anyway, he pointed out that this is one of the greatest sort of controlled studies of social science or political science in world history, far more interesting in some ways than, you know, the standard, you know, North Korea versus South Korea 
or East Germany versus West Germany stuff, because here you had two populations that, you know, were essentially, you know, not counting slaves, genetically, you know, in terms of ethnicity, identical. You had them that they were essentially culturally, to a large part, identical. You know, uh, before the revolution, they were all, you know, equally English subjects, essentially. And they had the same basic religious makeup, um, spoke the same language, not counting the, the French Canucks. Um, and yet they, their attitude towards government, their attitude towards social organization was just very different. And his example was how in the 1970s, both the United States and Canada simultaneously told the popu- the, their countries, their people, that they were switching to the metric system. And in Canada, they all said, okay. And in the United States... Uh, you know, we still, for the most part, think, you know, centimeters and centigrade and all that kind of stuff is witchcraft. And that's something I actually really love about America. And, um, but this point, getting back to the, the larger point, you know, one of the things I really liked about Lyman's take on this, and look, I'm, I, we're going to get to some of the feedback and comments soon, um, but... I don't think it has to be all one thing or all the other. You don't have to make it a simplistic thing. And Lyman didn't. Um, But this point about how when the government takes certain actions, it sends a signal that is more powerful than the law, right? I mean, Andy McCarthy over at the McCarthy Report has been making this point for a while. It's like, the federal government has no police to enforce stay-at-home orders, you know, the, and the local cops don't want to start putting people in jail to enforce these things. The best the cops can do is maybe write a, you know, a ticket or what they mostly do is just give people a warning and saying, hey, guys, come on, you know, break up this group and that kind of thing. But for the most part, the real power of these decisions from the government is that people voluntarily see that there is a reason behind it, and they voluntarily comply. Um, I'm kind of reminded, I have a, uh, one of my best friends in high school was a, uh, owned a printing company. And, um, you know, for all the obvious reasons, he cared about his employees, he cared about the costs incurred from accidents and workman's comp. You know, he really cared a lot about safety. And he actually had some giant paper cutting machine that you literally had to have both hands on these like giant like handlebar triggers. And if you didn't pull the triggers one with each hand, the machine wouldn't cut because this thing could cut through like reams of 500 or 1,000 sheets of paper. They're really powerful cutting thingies. And the whole point was the safety thing. If your hands were on the triggers, there's no way your hands could be in front of the blade. And yet one guy still managed to cut off his hand. And I don't know if he like tied rope around one of the triggers or whatever, but anyway, it was a terrible accident. And, and my friend's dad was really pissed about it. And, you know, he was sorry for the employee. And, um, but this was after years of warnings and tutorials and all of these kinds of things. And not to be too grim about it, there was a giant spray of blood that was on the wall. And my friend's dad was like, do not clean that up because people aren't following the signs. They're not following the tutorials. Maybe that giant smear of blood will be a better reminder 
than um, another lecture from me or another safety lesson. And apparently it, it worked really well. And it kind of reminds me, you know, uh, again, on the Remnant Podcast bingo card, uh, one of the things that might be on there would be uh, my favorite one of my favorite lines from Edmund Burke, where he says, example is the school of mankind. He will learn from no other. And what Burke meant by that is that, you know, you can talk a lot about theory. You can talk a lot about ideals and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, people look at what works and what doesn't work. Um, people look at what ends in tragedy um, or ends in prosperity. And they, see, and they learn from that. That, you know, the example is itself a signal. And sometimes you just have to show people you can't just tell them. And my hunch is, you know, looking at the pandemic, um, you know, no one going forward is going to be like laughed out of the room or no one's going to roll their eyes when someone says like George W. Bush did during his administration, we really have to prepare for this. You know, um, this experience is going to be a huge uh, signal to future policymakers that um, the black swan you know, the, the black, the, this doesn't need to be a black swan, a pandemic. It can be um, just a very improbable event. But even if it's um, very improbable, you should still prepare for it. Uh, you know, we maintain a massive military because we understand the risks of major uh, global conflicts like a world war. And we maintain that military to diminish the possibility that such a thing will happen. So my guess is that, you know, however this thing ends, uh, there's going to be a huge bipartisan consensus about having more, you know, more preparedness for the next pandemic because we, we think one is coming. I mean, it's sort of like, what was it that Dick Cheney said? The 1% or the 3%? paradigm or solution or something like that, where he was talking about how, and I'm sure I'm butchering this, if there was a 1% chance that Al-Qaeda would get nuclear weapons um, or terrorists would get nuclear weapons, then the federal government needed to treat that um, as if it was very possible, right? And again, I'm sure I'm butchering how he articulated it. But the point remains, there are some risks that are so, the, the consequences of which are so great that um, you need to prepare against them, even knowing that they are extremely unlikely. Um, and, you know, given that even under the rosiest of scenarios, the consequences of this thing are going to be economic costs that are quite plausibly greater than any kind of major war short of a nuclear war, um, we're going to learn from it. And there's a signal there. I also just like this idea, you know, one of the reasons why I like this idea is, you know, he's talking about markets, not necessarily economic markets, but markets of ideas, is that, um, and we didn't get a chance to talk about it much, but that's what markets, I mean, markets really are um, these mediums or media, I guess, right, of uh, conveying ideas and information. And this is a very Hayekian point. It's not unique to Hayek, obviously. But, you know, embedded in prices 
are just vast, vast amount of information that get boiled down to a price. You know, um, you could have a monsoon in Indonesia, and it's going to be reflected in the price of a candy bar eventually. Um, the way markets work is, the way prices work, is they're signals. They are signals that convey scarcity. They're signals that convey abundance. You know, when there's the price of oil is very low, it means there's a lot of oil out there. When the price of oil is very high, it means there's not. And so the price goes up. And when the price goes up, that immediately triggers economic actors to uh, invest in oil exploration, to invest in... Um, you know, bringing oil to market. And um, we don't, you know, we, in the, I'm very torn about all this stuff about price gouging. I don't really have a problem with the government cracking down on these bros who like went to eBay or Amazon really early and bought up all the hand sanitizer so that they could sell it. Um, you know, that kind of hoarding I think is something that the government can regulate during a real crisis. But, you know, this whole notion of price gouging is really wildly misunderstood. You know, when the price of something goes really, really high, that signals economic actors um, to get into that market, to, you know, bring goods to bear. Um, it is a really, really efficient way of marshalling resources um, without bureaucracy, without central planning. Um, and this sort of gets to what Hayek called the knowledge problem, which is still like the, I would argue, one of the most important uh, pieces of writing that, you know, policymakers um, ignore to their and our peril. And it's just his basic point was that, you know, some bureaucrat in Washington, no matter how genius he was, no matter what photographic memory he had and his capacity to study, um, you know, spreadsheets um, and inventories better than any other human alive was still not going to be as smart as the market, right? The market figures these things out precisely because um, prices send these signals so that economic actors don't actually have to talk to each other. They don't have to find out what's on the shelves in their firms. They just see that the price goes up and that triggers a set of decisions that respond to it. And this sort of insight about how prices are really signals is just hugely, hugely important. And it has all sorts of manifestations. Um, you know, one of, one of the things I got most out of Schumpeter, uh, Joseph Schumpeter, the economist, was his argument about how monopolies can't last forever um, uh, without the help of government, right? Because um, monopolies, by their very nature, become uh, resistant to innovation. Why would you want to innovate if you already have a monopoly? You're not forced to by competitors. You're not forced to by um, you know, consumer pressures through price. And so they become big and bloated and stuck on the existing paradigms that they have. And they face like the innovator's dilemma and all that kind of stuff. And so monopolies, when they are not protected by government, naturally invite smaller, more nimble players who improve on the quality of 
of the product, right? Either they learn how to make it better or deliver it faster or deliver it cheaper. And monopolies have a very difficult time dealing with these things, which is one of the reasons why monopolies almost invariably turn to the government to be protected. Um, and a monopoly that isn't protected by government will not last. And a monopoly that is protected by government is, you know, I'm not saying it's necessarily tyrannical, but it is um, statist because um, it is basically telling would-be competitors, you cannot compete in this realm. You have to leave this to um, um, the existing incumbent uh, power in the market. And I think that's, um, you know, this really important point. And it, it gets to this thing I was talking to with, uh, talking to Shoshana about, um, where it is natural for incumbent uh, business people, right? So, uh, you know, leaders in a trade or a profession to want to form guilds, which are essentially collective monopolies. You cannot be a stonemason unless you're in the stonemason's guild. You cannot be um, an optometrist unless you're a part of their professional association. And these groups tend to circle wagons around their existing members. They treat um, membership like it's gold, and they give it away very reluctantly, and they tend to give it away to the children and friends of existing members, right? And because the coalition instinct is very, very strong. And it is, it is a rational business decision to try to fix prices. If there are only three plumbers in your town, it makes sense to the three plumbers to talk to each other about carving up territories, fixing prices, guaranteeing their profits, locking out competitors and all of the rest. And that's why Adam Smith says that whenever people of the same trade or association meet, um, very quickly the conversation will turn into a conspiracy against the public good. You can't stop that. That's just a natural human reaction. It's the way people are going to operate. Uh, people form factions. The Founding Fathers understood that. Um, but what you can do is refuse to give them the license of the government, right? You can refuse to say that the government is going to use its power, including its monopoly on violence, uh, to protect certain industries over others, um, because that ultimately will lead to the, the detriment of the public good. Now, obviously, there are going to be some conceivable exceptions to this. I am not particularly bothered by, you know, the Trump administration wanting to protect Boeing, because this is not, it's not like Boeing was going under because of competition per se, although they were ha they had their problems, they're going under because of this, this black swan. And so there are all sorts of things that we're doing now that are, um, that would be deeply offensive to me during a time of peace and prosperity, but are understandable to me when it's necessary to sort of mobilize government power to deal with what is essentially a foreign threat, right? It may not be carrying guns, but the coronavirus you know, is metaphorically one of these things that the government actually needs to mobilize against in ways that are contradictory to how it should be operating under normal circumstances. You know, and the but last point on this, um, this price thing, right? Last week, I wrote, and I think I said, I can't remember, about how liberal democratic capitalism is the most cooperative system peaceful and cooperative system ever conceived of 
to get people to work harmoniously towards human prosperity. Um, this is a key point of my book, Suicide of the West. It's a key book. It's a key point of lots of things I've written over the years. The problem with it is it just doesn't feel like it, right? It's so good at being cooperative that it renders itself almost invisible. And the classic example of this um, is my, one of my favorite essays of all time, the uh, 1959, I think, called I Pencil. And it was written by this libertarian guy, Leonard Reed. And in I Pencil, it's written from the perspective of the pencil. I am a number two Eberhard and Faber pencil or something like that. I'm quoting all this from memory. And the pencil says, look, you know, my wood comes from Canada and my paint comes from Delaware and my rubber comes from Indonesia and my zinc comes from Zincland, wherever the hell zinc comes from. And um, he goes on to point out that nobody knows how to make a pencil. Um, pencil manufacturers do not really know how to make pencils. They know how to put together the last set of ingredients, right? They, 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 they buy the wood, they buy the paint, they buy the zinc, they buy the rubber, kind of sounds like uh, Tuzuzim from Passover. And, um, and they put that stuff together, but they don't know how to make rubber. They don't know how to make tin, you know, which is the little thing that holds the rubber in there. They don't know how to mine zinc. Um, they know how to order that stuff and put it together. And the same thing applies to virtually everything that you use as a consumer good in everyday life, with the exception, I guess, of some commodities. Um, people don't know how to, you know, Apple doesn't know how to make an iPhone. They know how to, to put together the last stages to assemble the last pieces of an iPhone. There was a guy who did a, and I talk about this in speeches all the time, you know, there was a guy who did a, there was a British museum exhibit called I Toaster like 10 or 15 years ago. And it was sort of in tribute to I Pencil. And the guy made a toaster from scratch. And so he like, I don't know, he, he mined the tin and he galvanized the rubber and he forged the copper. I don't know how you even do all of those things or even to describe them. And it took him, I don't know, like two years to build this thing or even longer. And it was a pretty crappy toaster. Um, someone else, there's a YouTube video somewhere, maybe we can find it for the show notes, where a guy made a chicken sandwich from scratch. And putting aside the chicken or egg parts, right, because he didn't really make a chicken, but he raised a chicken and he killed the chicken and he raised the lettuce and he made the bread from scratch and all of these kinds of things. And... Um, I think it ended up costing him 1500 bucks, And it was a just a fine chicken sandwich. Nothing great, just a chicken sandwich. And this is one of the things that is just so amazing about the division of labor, where just as the people making the pencil, you have people worshiping different gods, you have people speaking different languages, living in different countries, and yet they all, through the market, end up working cooperatively and peacefully to create a pencil or an iPhone or, you know, the stuff that goes into your chicken sandwich. And the problem is, is that because it's not, co it, it, it's not coerced and it's voluntary and it's invisible, um, it doesn't feel cooperative. What feels cooperative are things like sports teams and military platoons and... Um, 
um, and marching off to war or whatever. You know, it's, 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 it's one of these things that I think a lot of people who are desperate for all the social solidarity stuff don't really understand is that um, what they're trying to do is create cooperativeness by imposing some sort of scarcity or by withdrawing some aspect of human liberty to force people into shared experience or shared cooperation because it'll feel more like cooperation. And I'm not saying all that stuff is bad. I mean, the Boy Scouts are wonderful. Sports teams are wonderful. Um, um, but it really depends on the context. Uh, families are cooperative, but I wouldn't want the government to make families cooperative. Anyway, I don't want to repeat myself. For, I feel like, again, I just feel like this is all re recycled stuff I've been talking about for 20 years. But um, I, I think the, the basic point that Lyman gets at about how looking at, the, looking at how people are changing their behavior through the dissemination of signals um, of clear and concise information that causes them to change their own behavior the way prices do um, is really helpful. And, you know, the price here isn't that it'll be really expensive, although it will be if you get, you know, the coronavirus. Um, the price is, is that it might cost you your life or the life of a member of your family. And, you know, just because it doesn't come in dollars and cents doesn't mean it's not a price, doesn't mean it's not a price signal. And so when you effectively communicate to people the, the, the risks that they're taking, that's another way of saying, of putting a price on their behavior and people change their behavior accordingly. Um, where else should I be going here? Um, Oh, so just one other little thing, I guess. Um, in the G file, I begin with this jokey thing today about how weird it is. I mean, like, you know, there are all these cliches that we have about how we live in a reality show or, you know, wow, this is a weird timeline or I wonder what's happening on Earth 2. Um, or, you know, one of my standard go-tos is, you know, you know, why did they have to touch the orb? Um but there is something weird about the unreality, the sort of, you know, as I say in the G-File, you know, some of the, just so many of the things that have happened in the last few years, if you put them in a book, um, in a novel, right, someone would think, you know, Christopher Buckley were writing about some of these things. They say, oh, come on, that's too outlandish. You have to sort of stick closer to the, the realm of the possible. And... This this piece that Matt Ridley, who I just absolutely adore, did, and we're going to get him on the podcast at some point soon. Um, Matt Ridley did a piece for the Wall Street Journal about uh, the coronavirus and where it comes from and why bats are such a problem. I had no idea that bats are about, he says a quarter of all mammal species are bats. Uh, Wikipedia says it's about 20%. Even so, that's just... Don't get me wrong, but it's, it's just way too many bats. Um, not, I mean, I don't want to wipe out any species because of the unintended consequences of these things, though my understanding is that we could get rid of mosquitoes without much of a problem. But, you know, the precautionary principle applies here. But I don't like bats. I'm just, you know, every time they come up for a floor vote, I'm a nay. And anyway, he points out, he begins his piece by saying how... Um, you know, bats hold almost all of the bad diseases that have turned into epidemics or pandemics in recent years. And he explains why and all this kind of stuff. But he, he tells a story about how 
healthcare work, our biologists or whatever, or epidemiologists were in the Shitu cave. That's S-H-I-T-O-U, which again is a little too on the nose just by itself. Um, and when they take anal swabs of bats, which has got to be just, you know, one of the worst jobs imaginable. I mean, short of, you know, taste tester or lead paint factory, anal swabber in bat cave has got to be way up there um, in terms of jobs I do not want and I'm ill-suited for. Um, but there's just something sort of, you know, satirical almost that in these bat crazy times, um, this huge plot twist in the fourth season redounds to literal, not figurative, literal bat um, and if you put it in a book, everyone, oh, that's a, that's a clever thing, whatever. Anyway, it got me thinking, I don't talk about it in the G-File, about how, um, you know, when you do literary criticism, as we all want to do, uh, the pretentious word for um, fiction that reads like reality is verisimilitude, uh, which is just the same thing as sort of saying it's realistic. And But it, it kind of dawned on me that, um, we don't quite have the right word for stuff that's real um, that seems crazy. I mean, we can call it crazy and all that kind of stuff, but that doesn't quite capture it. Um, there's, and, you know, and that's what all those cliches are trying to get at, is that we seem to have split off in a fork in the road into a weirdly unreal time. And the pandemic puts it all on steroids. And it put me in mind of, of you know, the phrase, what is it, the willing suspension of disbelief. Uh, pretty much everybody who, you know, did theater in high school or was read more than a handful of movie or theater reviews is familiar with the phrase to one extent or another. And it's just basically this idea that... Um, you take it, you know, you, you, you take it as a given that it's just a movie, right? And you let it wash over you. You don't get that upset about the problems with, you know, I'll give you a couple examples just to prove my nerd bona fides. Um, I hate the holodeck in Star Trek. I think it makes very little sense. And it particularly enrages me that Geordi, who can see the entire spectrum of light through that visor of his, um, can still play on the holodeck in like fake 19th century England or something and everything looks right. If you can make figures in a holodeck, right, which is just supposed to be plays on light, um, first of all, corporeal, uh, tangible, physical. If you can make them physical and you can make them look real across the entire spectrum of light, you've created real stuff. It's no longer a holodeck, right? It's more like a replicator. And replicators have their own problems, so I won't get into that. There's also the, the, the vexing issue of transporters, which, you know, in all of these shows, they have phasers or other laser weapons that vaporize people. And, um, you know, the question is, why is the transporter not doing that? Just because it puts the pattern back together someplace else doesn't mean that you weren't killed. 
and then a really good replica of you appeared someplace else. And it, that all bothers me. But again, when I start saying stuff like this, people say, Jonah, it's just a TV show. You have to have some willing dis suspension of disbelief. Anyway, I, I actually write a bit about willing suspension of disbelief in Suicide of the West. And a lot of people don't know this. I didn't know it until I started working on the book, that it's actually a phrase that, or a term. Sorry, I, I smoked a bunch of cigars and I got real bad dry mouth today. Um, the term was, was coined by um, co the poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge. And don't worry, um, we're not going to get too deep in the weeds on romantic poetry. But he and uh, William Wordsworth uh, did this groundbreaking work called The Lyrical Ballads. And why it comes to mind is that they had this interesting division of labor. Um, Coleridge um, was supposed to take one side of the creepy supernatural spectrum, right, and, say, and make supernatural things seem real. He was, he, in, his, in his work in Lyrical Ballads, he takes ghosts and demons or, you know, uh, redheads, you know, mythical creatures, um, and, um, and makes them seem as if they could be real. And Wordsworth came from the other end, where he took real stuff and made it seem sort of like it's supernatural and, and creepy. And they worked from both ends to, and what was required was to sort of arouse, they're the beginning of British romantic poetry, this willing suspension of disbelief where you kind of allow yourself to entertain the possibility of really weird stuff. And I don't know, it's been in my head for a while because I watched the, um, was it The Outsider, the HBO Stephen King thing, and I had the same problem with it that I have with a lot of Stephen King stuff. He is so good at the at the Coleridge part, right? Or I don't know how to put this. I mean, without name-checking Coleridge and Wordsworth anymore, I'm going to just put it in my own words. He's so good at setting a realistic mood that there's just this weird serial killer out there in the case of The Outsider or in the case of The Stand, that there's just this crazy pandemic that's freaking everybody out. And then, because he's Stephen King he has to sort of drop the second shoe and do supernatural stuff. And for me, it's sometimes really kind of disappointing because the stuff that seemed, that was about how weird the real world could get um, with just a few changes um, to our ordinary circumstances was really interesting and cool enough. And then once you go to um, ghosts or demons and spirits and all that kind of stuff, um, it lets you off the hook for landing what I kind of feels like a, the ending that would have been cooler. Uh, you know, to me, it's sort of it's not a cop out because this is what he does, and he's a multimillionaire doing it, and he's really good at it, and I'm not. But it's what annoys me about a lot of that genre. It's you know, it's, it's similar to my beef about dream sequences. You know, the second uh, TV shows or movies start going heavily into the dream sequence stuff it means that they have uh, given up on actually doing their job. I mean, I cannot tell you how much, I've been rewatching Sopranos, how much I hate all of the dream sequences in it because they're just, 
the end of the day, they're not that interesting. They go on for a very long time. They seem like ego maintenance for, um, what's his name? The guy who plays Tony Soprano and writer indulgence to make some ultimately kind of pedestrian point seem really profound by putting it in a dream. Uh, I can't remember why I got into all this stuff, but, oh, well, just because um, I kind of feel like with the pandemic stuff and even just the way politics have been for a while now, that there's just a lot of willing suspension of disbelief that you just sort of have to take all of this stuff um, as it is, even though a lot of it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Um, okay, so I had this idea that I should save some time on this thing to respond to uh, listeners and readers um, and not just sort of bebop and scat about stuff that bothers me on Twitter um, because they're not subscribers and you guys are. And, um, and at least so far, there's a lot of stuff I've disagreed with in the comments section over at the Dispatch but so far, we're very happy with the fact that it tends to be civil and thoughtful and uh, unlike most comment sections. And it is entirely, we are well aware that it may get to the point where it stops being that because there is some, you know, some, you know, comment section law that says once you get to a certain scale, uh, the trolls sort of like, you know, <laughs> like the Monopoly thing independent actors swarm in and ruin it for everybody. And we spent a lot of time thinking about how to prevent that from happening. Um, and it hasn't really happened yet, so which we appreciate. Um, and so, I mean, I guess one of the first ones I want to address really quickly, it's kind of a, just a good housekeep or, or, or housekeeping thing, is um, somebody really didn't like the ad for hydrant in the lime and stone podcast and he was like why do i have to listen to ads i'm a paid subscriber why do i have to listen to this stuff about hydrant i get it but um you know the, the simple fact is is that we're a business and we took a big risk by essentially banning all of the clickbait ad model stuff that runs so many other websites, many of which are doing very badly during the pandemic um, and that we're somewhat, thank God, insulated from precisely because we have a different business model. And, you know, there were, there were two rules, there were two schools of thought about why we were doing it, or there were several rules, schools of thought. Part of it was, and this is the stuff that Steve tended to emphasize, that it's, um, it's corrupting. It's, it's corrupting to um, how you cover things, how you write about stuff. If you are just constantly in search of more eyeballs, you tend to um, post stuff, you know, that's really hot takey that, you know, attracts um, instantaneous Twitter clicks and Facebook clicks and all that kind of stuff that is, as I often say, it's it's trying to monetize dopamine hits. You, know, you make people angry or you make people um, really excited to join in some fight or, you know, seduce them with uh, the sweet, sweet allure of schadenfreude and the delicious taste of liberal tears or conservative tears if you're a left-wing site. 
um, by destroying Elon Omar or whatever. And not all that stuff is bad. A lot of it is distorting and overdone, but we didn't want to do that. Um, for me, the main reason was, I mean, I have more, you know, I guess I have more faith in our ability to resist asininity, but um, uh, for me, it's the user experience, just the pop-up ads and the, where's that video? You know, why can't I stop this video? And where's that audio coming from stuff? It ruins the experience of reading. We also just think that this is sort of where the business is going in part because of both of those considerations. And there's some interesting data out recently to support that. The New York Times had an interesting piece about how a lot of the sort of clickbait business model sites are really suffering at a time when people want more confidence that they're getting actual reliable news and information and not fan service. Um, and, uh, and that's been good for us for the same reason, because I think we have a certain people have a certain amount of trust in us that we're, you know, we're baby conservatives, um, but we're honest about it and we're not just trying to attract eyeballs and drudge links and all of that kind of stuff. Anyway, um, but we both agreed um, that it's not the same thing with podcasts. It's just not, we're not against advertising, qua advertising. We are capitalists. We want this thing to succeed. And um, we, you know, and there may come a time down the road if we can do it in a way that is not distracting and not sort of uh, distorting or, or, or needlessly influencing editorial decisions or any of that kind of stuff, there may come a time when we actually, you know, put sponsorships in newsletters. We're, we're not doing that now because um, we don't know how to do that in a way that sort of fits with our vision quite yet. Um, but we don't, th- I, we don't think at this point that there's anything, any first order objection to doing that. We just don't want to ruin the user experience or, you know, pursue the clickbait model. And so, and we want to build our audience. And so we're not doing that. We're never going to do, you know, those kinds of pop-up ads or any of that kind of stuff on the website. And that's at least our, you know, that, that's something that we've all agreed to from the beginning. But, you know, on podcast ads, you can, you know, you hit that fast forward 15 or 30 second button three times. You can skip through it. I try to make at least the segues somewhat entertaining. Um, I've, it's never occurred to me that it, you know, has changed how I would do a podcast one way or another. Um, based upon who the advertiser is. We've rejected some advertising that we think is just a bad look for us or that are products that we don't want to be associated with, but we're taking it for granted that our audience are grown-ups and that that this is the way virtually all podcasts go. Um, it may be that when we get to a scale that we can have the manpower to do it, that you know, if you're a subscriber you get the commercial-free version of the podcast, but we're not remotely there yet. And we also just don't think it's, it's that big a burden. Um, I, but I apologize if people really take offense at it. We are going to have um, podcasts that are only for paid subscribers going you know, down the road, and we're in talks about how to do that. But the Remnant will always be a free podcast, and one of the reasons why we can do that is because it has ads. Anyway, I spent way too much time on this, um, but I just wanted to get it out there. Um, so 
one of the things I actually really did want to get at is there were a couple, uh, um, what I think pretty unfair criticisms of the Wednesday G file where, um, I sort of went into, you know, Trump criticizing mode. I didn't think it was over the top. I think it's sort of instructive that most of the criticisms weren't about the merits of the things that I was saying. Um, it was that they're tired of hearing this stuff from me or um, that they think I'm obsessed um, or that I shouldn't be criticizing the people who are cheerleading Trump. Um, I'll give you one one of them. Uh, Earl King writes, I am mystified by Jonah's incessant obsession with Donald J. Trump. I simply don't understand his point. He rarely discusses policy anymore. Lots is happening, even at home. How do we reconcile the government's basic intrusion in my right to exercise? Yet he obsesses about Trump. He doesn't belong in a thoughtful journal of conservatives these days. He rarely discusses the threat of increasingly insane Democratic Party. Perhaps he belongs with George Conway's Don Quixote crusade against his wife and her boss in some political action committee. I feel for him. He is truly lost. Now, thank you, Earl, for subscribing to the Dispatch, but I think this is... I reject it entirely. Um, and I re responded to him in brief on the site already, but since uh, we're here, I'll, I'll make some points. Um, first of all, it's just not true that I don't discuss policy. Uh, I challenge anybody to go and look through my last 25 uh, syndicated columns, G-files, uh, podcasts, and all of that kind of stuff. I talk about policy a lot. I certainly talk about policy a hell of a lot more than most conservative you know, columnists and podcast hosts. I mean, good Lord, we just did a podcast on occupational licensing. You know, I did podcasts on homelessness. We've done podcasts on, you know, last week on epidemiology. I mean, we're, we're, I, do, I do lots of policy stuff. I've gone after, you know, Elizabeth Warren on all sorts of things, on Bernie Sanders and on socialism a lot. It's just not true. Um, and it's not true that I only write about, similarly, it's not, only it's not true that I only write about Trump or even that I'm all that obsessed with him um, or obsessed at all. This, this, I, 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 you know, I get this all of the time, particularly on Twitter, from people who think they are experts on my motives. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, so the other day I saw this video, remember when Trump was saying how he had nothing to do with the, the models about the spread of COVID-19 and the mortality rate and all that kind of stuff. He said, I had nothing to do with the models, uh, at least not these kinds of models. And it was a joke about how he used to, you know, bang models. Um, and so I tweeted a thing about the video where I didn't even, I just acknowledged that I thought it was in poor taste and it, and it was an inappropriate thing to say while people are dying in a global pandemic when the economy is cratering um, to making, you know, to bragging about, you know, his relationship with, with models, never mind all the rabbit holes that that, that brings up. Um, all I did was sort of acknowledge that people are criticizing him for that, but I said the funny part is look at Mike Pence's face. You know, he remains 
deadpan throughout the entire thing, which I think is just kind of funny when you watch it. It's, you know, he kind of has like a, what Robert Shaw says about, you know, sharks. He's black eyes, the doll's eyes. And I actually think it's kind of fascinating how Pence, who is, you know, a, you know, to be charitable about it, is, you know, he's a straight arrow kind of guy, religious guy, um, you know, socially conservative guy, how, who is, I have to say, is so far as I can tell, being vastly more presidential than the president and is doing a fantastic job at these press conferences and by all accounts on the, the coronavirus task force. Uh, but it's sort of just, I think it's funny how he has to um, put up with Trump and I would love to know what's going on in his head. You know, he's got these standard phrases. He always has to fawn over Trump and talk about his broad-shouldered leadership and all of that kind of stuff. Anyway, so I, I tweeted about it. It was a nothing thing. And all these people come at me, you know, I thought what Trump said, they completely skip over the Pence part and go nuts about how Pence is, they go nuts about how Trump was funny, it was great, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so you think it was funny. Um, I don't in that context. Um, I thought it was inappropriate. I don't think it was particularly presidential. Um, but fine, people can disagree about that. And, and then some guy I've never heard of from Breitbart um, responded to one of my replies to this by talking about how what I was really showing was that I was jealous of the fact that Trump had sex with more women than I have and with beautiful women and all of these kinds of things. And you get, you know, this is a, this, I mean, this is a very Gorka argument. Gorka, uh, you know, has this Renfield-like suck up or to Trump, which has got this weird beta male thing about how jealous people like me must be of Melania Trump, who is objectively a beautiful woman. Um, and the thing is, is like, I can just tell you, it's the thought never entered my mind. I am in no way jealous of Donald Trump's sex life. Um, perfectly happily married. I had a pretty robust dating life in the past, but I don't want to sound defensive. It just didn't occur to me. You might as well have said, oh, you're angry at Trump because vests have no sleeves. But this is the kind of thing that people do all the time where they assume that they know what my motives are and what my thinking is. And they think that if I'm criticizing Trump, it must be because... I'm obsessed with him, or I'm angry at my irrelevance and all of these kinds of things. And, you know, 95% of the time, um, is it not only not a bullseye, they're basically throwing darts into the janitor's forehead, missing the board entirely. Um, there are very few things that I can claim to be a true expert on, but one of them is my own motivations. And I tend to be really honest about them. Um, Moreover, you know, so getting back to Earl King's point, my entire career since I stopped being a television producer has been not, you know, has been largely, not entirely, but largely writing about things like conservatism and conservative politics, Republican politics, the role of government. Uh, you know, I very much want to write a dog book, in part because I'm tired of a lot of this stuff. But the idea that I shouldn't be talking about how Donald Trump behaves as president and the things that he is doing when I disagree with him, um, and that instead I should be, uh, you know, uh, ignoring him or aiming my fire entirely at Democrats, I just think is bullshit. And, you know, 
I care about conservatism. I don't really care that much about the Republican Party. And um, this, this obsession with this idea that, um, but this, so this, this idea, which I can't tell you how many times I've written about and talked about, you know, it is definitely a remnant bingo card point about how, uh, you know, when I talked about it with the, on the Steve Tellers podcast, um, this idea, I don't want to be a party guy. It's not who I am. Um, and if you, or it's not who I am at least anymore, um, yeah, I'll vote for Republicans if they're on the ballot over most Democrats I'm aware of, uh, but I don't, I don't, I don't give a damn about my vote. I've never lived anywhere where my vote mattered in any particular way. And, um, um, but what I don't want to do is like say, okay, what do I write to help the Republican party? That's not how I'm wired these days. Um, and I'm very comfortable with that. And if people aren't comfortable with that, fine. And don't read me or disagree with me on the substance of what I'm saying, but don't keep coming back like a dog to its vomit to this idea that I'm somehow betraying my actual role, my you know, fiduciary obligations by calling out uh, misdeeds by the president or not getting caught up in the herd of the latest, you know, meme obsession about this Democrat or that Democrat. I'm, I'm writing the stuff that I think is important or that I just want to get out of my head. And so like John Sanders, another subscriber, thank you very much for subscribing. He writes, as a new Dispatch subscriber, I may stay with you, but I very well may not. Your whole group, led by Steve and Jonah, are so fixated on not being a quote-unquote cheerleader for anyone that you've lost sight of one critical fact now in all caps. This is an election year. Next January, we will be governed by one of two groups, those who want a single-payer healthcare system and all the other socialist ideas, or an egotistical, deeply flawed man and his allies fighting against all of that. There is no third choice. The media on the left Many flat-out lying about the president outnumber those on the right by roughly 10 to 1. Liberals will love Jonah's quote-unquote even-handed column and will probably quote from it as they campaign, easily ignoring the single sentence about unfairness of their side. Okay, so the last part, I think, is a somewhat valid point. Um, I often feel like I have to point out in columns all the time that the Democrats suck, right? And that simply because I'm criticizing Trump doesn't mean I agree with uh, the Democrats on things. I have not gone full Jen Rubin or Max Boot simply because the leader of the Republican Party and one branch of uh, one level of American government being the federal government um, is someone who I think is a person of bad character who I disagree with doesn't mean all of a sudden I'm going to change my views on the minimum wage, climate change, or uh, national defense, right? Um, that's not how I'm wired. I've been, I think I've been really honest about all of that. But this sort of gets to the point. I don't work for the Republican Party. I don't write for the Republican Party. The upshot of this is that, what, I should write with an idea of mobilizing voters for Donald Trump or for the Republicans? 
There are lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people doing that every single day. The world of not just pro-Trump media, but, but of conservative media works from, you know, uh, an assumption that that's part of what they're supposed to be doing. Not everybody. And I don't think it's necessarily intellectually dishonest. It depends on who you're talking about. I think a lot of people are just perfectly comfortable with the idea that the conservative movement is essentially a de facto messaging and consulting operation for the Republican Party and Republican politics. And that has always been part of ideological journalism forever, is you know picking sides and making arguments that are more conducive to one side's benefit than another's. I get all of that, and there's nothing inherently evil or illegitimate of it. But I think it is just weird that people get so offended that I don't want to be part of that. You know, I, I named this friggin' podcast The Remnant after Albert J. Nock, who saw, you know, um, basically all of the statist programs of the left and the right, however you think, however apt you think those labels may or may not be, um, that they were all just basically, as he calls them, different trade names for the same product. And I don't think that there's no difference between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. I think there are important differences. And on policy stuff, I am with the Republicans all the time. I'm just not interested in um, saying, okay, damn, if I write this column this way, it means this voter or that voter won't vote for Trump. I will be perfectly happy if Donald Trump doesn't win. I will not be happy if the Democrats win. But the thing is, I just don't have that calculation in my head. I really don't, or at least I'm trying really hard not to. I'm not a, I'm not just not a party guy. And if I focus a lot on Trump and the and and Trump's defenders, it's it's not because I am trying to screw with the election results. It's really not. I can just tell you, I just not. It's because I don't like what's happening to conservatism. And I, you know, I, I, I thought the Flight 93 election stuff was bullshit. I think this binary choice stuff, you know, it, it certainly is true as an analytical matter that the election is ultimately going to be a binary choice. But so what? You know, that doesn't affect me. I mean, think of me for all intents and purposes as a libertarian here. People don't give libertarians this kind of crap all the time, at least not that I can tell, about how they have to fall in line for a party program and a political agenda. I'm out, I just see myself as just not concerned with that stuff. And instead, but I am deeply, deeply concerned with conservatism. And I'm concerned with conservatism not necessarily primarily as a legislative agenda or a policy agenda in this sense. Um, although, you know, I care about the policy agenda stuff. I'm concerned about conservatism because I think that this, this, this country is not doomed if the Republicans lose an election or even three elections. Um, and as I've talked about a bunch, I honestly think that both parties are due for a major shaking up. Um, but I am really deeply worried about losing conservatism because it falls to conservatism to conserve, to conserve the things that are worth conserving, to be motivated by a sense of gratitude about what is good about this country and about our society and about our culture and defend it regardless of the dictates of the election cycle. And when I see conservatives, you know, there's, just, there's this really weird thing going on. This is a bit of a tangent. For three years, I've been hearing about nationalism. I've been writing about nationalism and criticizing nationalism and all of this kind of stuff. And I've been hearing from people that nationalism is great and all these things. 
and it depends on who you're talking about, about how serious they are as, as thinkers. Um, but there's always the elephant in the room is Donald Trump. And that Donald Trump represents the rise or the return of nationalism, and that's a good thing, and yada, yada, yada. I think it's worth pointing out that the ISI Encyclopedia of Conservatism doesn't even have an entry on nationalism. Um, nationalism was not considered a central idea or concept in the history of intellectual conservatism until really, really re recently where it's sort of being read back into it. But anyway, you now have, you know, you had everyone talking about how nationalism is important, about how Donald Trump represents it, about how Donald Trump is creating jobs and how Donald Trump is, is, is uh, guiding the economy and all of these kinds of things. And then the weird thing is the pandemic hits and for reasons that I find kind of fascinating, but I don't know enough about, for the first time, he retreats to federalism and says, oh, no, the governors are taking the lead. I'm hanging back. This is their thing. I'll support them. But, you know, uh, you know, I'm not running these things. These are decisions best left to governors. On, you know, this is a guy who tried to take credit for the declining cancer. He's been taking credit for all sorts of things as if he is the, the, the god king of this country for a very long time and that he deserves, you know, praise for every good trend as if he's responsible for them. And then when there's actually this time when people are clamoring for him to take a lead and actually mobilize and act as if he is in charge of the entire country. He does this thing that I'm, I'm kind of befuddled by and falls back on the federalism thing. And I can, there are good arguments for it. We've had, uh, we've had some good pieces on, on, at the dispatch about how important this flexibility is. I, I, I don't think it's silly. I think the people like you know Bill de Blasio who've been going around saying Trump is Hitler or Trump is a tyrant or a would-be tyrant. And then the second the pandemic hits says, Donald Trump is a bastard for not putting the army on my streets. I mean, those are the people who are silly. Um, and, you know, the, the National Production Act stuff, there are good arguments on both sides of all that. That's not my point. But it is amazing to me how the people who have been championing nationalism and, uh, you know, a unified country that acts as one during a time of peace and prosperity, when we actually fall out of that timeline into this crazy pandemic thing, they're all of a sudden, oh, it's great that he's doing federalism. And, you know, how dare people criticize him for not being a more hands-on leader and running things. And there's a lot of stuff going on there. And I find that kind of stuff both interesting and important to write and think about for the health of conservatism. You know, I still remember when conservatives hated crony capitalism and picking winners and losers. I don't understand, or I guess I, I understand it, I just don't find it persuasive, why I should stop criticizing that now that the Republican Party has, at least at the top of it, changed its positions on that stuff. You know, I, I criticize it when Obama did it, I criticize it when Trump did it, but here's the funny thing. Trump is the president of the United States, you only have one president at a time, and the idea that I should ignore him um, because people don't want to hear about him anymore just gives him a pass to do whatever the hell he wants to do. Elon Omar sucks, but I'm not going like, to write column after column about a nobody, uninfluential congresswoman 
um, just because it's 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 clickbait or you know boo bait or whatever. He's the president of the United States. He has the vast apparatus of conservative media, with with only a handful of exceptions, basically marching to his tune, and I don't want to march to that tune. And if that bothers people, I'm sorry. And I think it is, you know, taking this as, a, as the softer version of this criticism, it is probably true I could write less about Trump. I certainly want to write less about Trump. You know, there's not a lot of new things to say about Trump sometimes. But he's also the central figure in American politics. He's the central figure in American conservatism. And I think it's worth addressing. So I address it. And if, if that seems like an obsession... You know, I don't think it's necessarily in these guys' comments, but it is definitely out there. The, a lot of people are, obs- a lot of pro-Trump people are obsessed with Trump. A lot of pro-Trump people want to make everything about how great he is. And I just, you know, I wonder how many people send them thoughtful criticisms saying, why are you so obsessed with Trump um, when it's pro-Trump stuff? And... Uh, so I don't, I really, uh, you know, I'm open to the idea of apologizing for the frequency of some of these things, but I, I don't feel it. Um, but I'm not going to apologize for taking the positions that I take because they're, they're my positions and I know what my motives are. Anyway, um, we've gone long. I know there are other comments and concerns out there, but I actually have to record a glop podcast in a few minutes also. And I'm already losing my voice. So, again, thanks to everybody for sticking with us. Uh, For the people who are sick of my stuff, read our other stuff. You know, we do a lot of non-Trump stuff. Um, And I'm very proud of what we're doing. I'm very proud of the the audience that we've got. And, um, And I'm very grateful to be in the position that I can do this kind of stuff the way I'm doing it. Um, without having feeling like I have to cave in to the demands for more fan service. Um, so thank you guys, because I, you know, I didn't read compliments, because that would seem weird. Um, but uh, I get a lot, and I appreciate it a lot, and it keeps me going sometimes, because this can be a grind. And um, I promise that we will figure out a way to make these audio podcasts seem at least more normal to me, because they still seem kind of weird to me. Uh, And with that, I'll see you next time. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.